nobody there It seems I'm all alone again Does anybody care? This planet's empty I see no signs of life Please don't tell me that the human race Did not survive There are no people in the future There are no people There are no people in the future No people at all There are no people in the future Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future Let me try my people call Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, I am hoping that my technical, logical stuff is working well. Uh, yes, here we go. I think I've got it going. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, it is Friday, April 14th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. Yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. <laughs> Sorry, just checking something out, making sure that my voice is coming through okay. There was something that was a little weird there. Anyways, yes, you can support the show, become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. And uh, if anybody's, uh, anybody who's on right now, if my voice sounds low or the sound sounds low, please let me know. It looks like I got it straightened out. I had a little issues kind of getting on today. Um... Not sure, but we shall see. Anyways, you can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're like one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to. Leave a comment, let folks know why you like the show, little things like that. Help other people find the show and help amplify the work that we do here. And yes... Now more than ever, thanks, Chuck, I appreciate it <laughs> for the sound check. Uh, now more than ever, we got to remember, with these uh, primaries coming up and uh, municipal elections on their way, we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. Putting small dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. On today's show, man, there's a lot happening this week, and I can tell you right now, there's no way we're getting to it all, but we'll try to highlight what we can. Woo, right off the top, Florida passed, and Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a six-week abortion ban, thanks to a legislature dominated by Republicans. Florida's current 15-week ban is held up in court, but if that ban is upheld, that 16-week ban that was just signed into law will automatically go into effect. That's a trigger provision. Oh. And a federal courts, a federal appeals court refused to suspend the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifeprestone, but it upheld a ban on patients um, being able to get the pills sent to them in the mail. So that pretty much guarantees that the case will be headed to the right-wing dominated U.S. Supreme Court that just overturned Roe v. Wade. How about that? Yep, so basically, that's what they're doing. They set up a conflict. They're saying, okay, yes, you, you, the FDA has approved this, but we are going to allow the ban on patients being able to get that those pills in the mail. Oh, we'll talk about that more. 
And a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman was arrested for his role in leaking on Discord classified documents related to the war in Ukraine. According to the New York Times, Jack Tichera, Tichera, uh, I, I knew I should have practiced more. Tichera led a group of, quote, 20 to 30 people, mostly young men and teenagers, as they bonded over guns, racist memes, and video games and international politics. That's the where the, the documents got leaked. And of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene does the only thing she's consistent on, injecting reactionary bile into the public discourse. This time she comes out in support of National Guardsmen, who just leaked those documents, basically saying that, hey, Jake, look, he's a good guy. Like, he's a white, male, Christian, and anti-war. That makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. And he told the truth about the troops being on the ground in Ukraine a lot more. Ask yourself, who's the real enemy? Jeez. We elect these people. And Matthias Dörfner, who's the CEO of Germany's largest media corporation and the new owner, owner of Politico, yes, just bought Politico, is all in on the dystopian climate future. Yes, and in a series, a series of internal emails and messages published in Die Zeit this week, that's a German newspaper, um, this is what he wrote. He said, quote, I'm all in for climate change. And then he argued that humans have always done better during warmer periods. Quote, we shouldn't fight climate change, but adjust to it, he said. And for good measure, and in, he also wrote in a longer message about his views on foreign policy. Right? What did he say? Free West, F the intolerant Muslims, and all the other riffraff. Yep. That's the guy who now owns Politico. Great. And Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area received more than two feet of rain over a 12-hour period on Wednesday. Think about it. Two feet of rain for a 12-hour period. Now, the flooding in the region has shut down major airports, has stranded kind of all sorts of number of people. And then, and then on Thursday, an additional two to three inches of rain fell. Two to three inches of rain is a lot of rain. To get 25 point whatever it was, 25 point something inches of rain in a 12-hour period is unprecedented. The area's previous record rainfall was set in 1979, and it was 14.59 inches of rain. Almost double the amount fell on Wednesday. That's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And usually in April, right, usually in April... They average about three inches of rain totally for the month. And that amount of rain amounts to about a third of Fort Lauderdale's annual rainfall. They got it in one shot, a third of it. This is just absolutely nuts. And of course, most of the reporting that I read, well, you talk about NBC News, you talk about New York Times, you talk about Washington Post. If climate change is mentioned at all, it's buried way down at the end as a possibility. And a little closer to home, Chris, Chris Ullery and Bethany Rogers published an explosive investigation in the Bucks County Courier Times on how the religious law firm, the Independence Law Center, is writing anti-LGBTQ policy for school boards across Pennsylvania. That was an amazing piece. And surprise, surprise, we've got Chris Ullery on the show this coming Monday. More on that in a minute. 
And abortion rights and healthcare advocates urge state lawmakers and Governor Shapiro to stop sending public money to support anti-abortion organization Real Alternatives. Real Alternatives uses deceptive practices to push patients away from having an abortion while posing as reproductive health clinics or crisis pregnancy centers. The Wolf administration allocated more than $7.2 million to Real Alternatives, and Governor Shapiro is continuing the practice with $6 million in his proposed budget. Of that $6 million, a million of that is being taken from TAMP funds, right? You know, to feed hungry kids. It's being taken from that. And Pennsylvania is one of only nine states that allows that money that was allocated for TAMP to be able to kind of be spent on things like crisis pregnancy centers, religiously based crisis. Uh, just uh, don't even get me started. Well, you got me started already, I guess. Unbelievable. <sighs> Will Bunch makes the case for a state takeover of Temple University. He argues, quote, the best way to restore Temple as a public good, once and again serving Philadelphia and surrounding communities as an affordable and accessible way up the ladder, would be to make it and arguably the three other state-supported schools a fully public university. Yep, talk about that too. We got a, we got a, we got a guest coming up too as well. It's going to intersect with this one. It's been crazy. An award-winning author, Jane Kwok, flew in from the Netherlands to address the Central Bucks School Board Yep, because they were making moves to ban her book. Yep, so guess what? She flies in and talks to them directly. How about that? In today's kind of last call-ish kind of stuff, I don't know, I felt like I needed some like just lighter things at the end, even though it's not that light. Well, some of them are. Uh, but Amazon, I don't know if you saw this, Amazon just entered the big AI race that's ongoing. Um, they launched this platform called Bedrock. Now, this is going to operate a little bit different than what we saw with ChatGPT and what we see now with Google Bard. So basically, Amazon, classic Amazon, they're just launching a space and a platform for the development of apps that use AI. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? What could go wrong with that? Anyways, uh, since we didn't talk last, uh, last Friday, because, well, I've already explained all that. Um, and I don't think I really mentioned this on Monday, uh, where I did a kind of like Monday politics roundup, but, uh, Dungeon Dragons Honors Among Thieves that came out kind of like a week and a half ago or whatever. And I did go see it. I told you I was going to go see it. I saw it and it freaking rocked. It was great. It was so much fun. More family went. I'll tell you more about that later on. I just loved it. And I thought, you know, think about a little, so what's uh, kind of on the reading list? Well, I'm currently reading Rick Perlstein's uh, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmasking of the American Consensus. It's like the first of a series of his books that's kind of tracking um, the development of conservatism, this kind of really right, kind of right turn um, uh, conservatism, beginning with uh, Barry Goldwater and beyond. So started that one and i'm also reading uh the uh bone shard emperor which is uh this is by and uh, andrea stewart uh, this is really cool series uh it's fiction it's kind of like science fiction type fantasy kind of all mixed kind of one but it's book two of her drowning empire trilogy and it's just it's just really interesting it's uh i, I think i've mentioned it when i first start when i when i was reading book one i think i talked about it on the show uh really interesting um but i'll fill you in more on that in a bit for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. Eastern every night. 
wherever you get your live streams and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For all the information, check out the ricksmithshow.com and you get the latest across all his platforms, the TV show, the podcast, the streams, everything. It's right there. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. If you haven't heard, well, you're going to hear it right now. The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal shines a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organization solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the podcast on buckscountybeacon.com or wherever you get your podcast. And as of, I think, yesterday, it is now finally, finally available on Apple Podcasts. So you can get it wherever you get your podcast. Go look for the signal for the Bucks County Beacon. And all you gamers out there, the Game Inn, that's with two N's, the Game Inn is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything from Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts with every other report card. You can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn with two N's. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow follow him on oh, all his great stuff on his YouTube page. And follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. Great news on Out to Coop Live upcoming this Monday, uh, April 17th at 7 p.m., as I was mentioning before. I welcome Chris Ullery to the show. Chris covers extremism and social justice for the Bucks County Courier Times' PA State Team. We'll be talking about his new investigative piece, Libraries to Locker Rooms, How a Religious Law Firm is Changing PA School Policies. This is co-written with Bethany Rogers of the USA Today Network, uh, the Pennsylvania Capital Bureau investigative journalist. Well, Chris exposes how a deep-pocketed religious law firm is working with right-wing school boards across Pennsylvania to change policies and sow division. I cannot wait for this discussion. And then the week following that, on Monday, 424, that is April 24th. We're still working out the time. We might go with the 7 o'clock time, but it might end up being a little bit during the day. I'll let you know. Um, I'm going to welcome Francois Furstenberg to the show. Furstenberg is a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University. And we'll be talking about his new article in the Chronicle of Higher Education called Higher Ed's Grim, Solus, Ed-Techified Future. How about that? Yeah, Furstenberg focuses on the vision of Temple's former embattled president, Jason Wingard, and how his championing of skillification is only the tip of the iceberg of what's in store for higher ed. It was really cool. Uh, once we kind of uh, kind of got uh, uh, Francois on the show, um, just yesterday, the piece that I mentioned in my intro there, uh, Will Bunch published something on Temple and gives uh, Furstenberg a big shout out in the middle of the uh, middle of the article. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation too as well. And look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement, the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, I did it again. Uh, my uh, intro time... Um, 
kind of ran longer than my music. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to add more to the music, right? <laughs> That's the only thing I can do. Uh, anyways, welcome everybody. Uh, for all you tuning in live right now, uh, let me know what's on your mind. Let me know if you got questions, thoughts, concerns. Um, love to hear what's going on. Um, there's major school board meetings coming up. Um, I know this this week um, that I have been. I uh, know there's a bunch of uh, folks organizing around it. There's new policy changes that are going on. Um, I'm going to wait for some of that. Some, I mean, if you have questions, you have stuff you want to throw in about it, absolutely. That's great. Uh, we're not going to go in too deeply on that tonight in particular because uh, we're going to spend uh, this Monday talking to Chris O'Leary um, about uh, what's been happening with the Independence Law Center um, and uh, look, Penridge School District um, and the Central Buck School District um, are two of the school districts that have been getting this quote unquote free advice and have having policies written for them on everything from the, uh, you know, the so-called anti-advocacy um, policy that passed, which is kind of removing of the pride flags from all the classrooms, the, uh, the book bans, the uh, restrictions on um, LGBTQ youth, right, when it comes to the use of their pronouns, all this kind of stuff is all coming down, um, uh, is all going to be kind of, we're going to talk all about all that on uh, Monday's show, so I'm looking forward to this. So I guess some of the biggest news that came out, um, I mean, just, God, was just happened, right, um, was the Florida passing the abortion ban. And um, this is... I mean, this is a huge, huge deal. Um, I mean, we're talking about um, we're talking about a six-week ban, a pregnancy ban, basically, which is you know is kind of insane. I mean, it, as you you know, anybody who pays any kind of attention, right, to know that there are many women who uh, by you know say the fifth week, the sixth week, may still not even be aware that they're pregnant. I mean, um, you know, you're, that's like kind of at the end of, you know, uh, your cycle. Um, and, you know, to think that one, okay, you realize that you're pregnant a month in and then suddenly you have to scramble to try to, you know, if you need, you need an abortion to do, I mean, it's just, this is just unbelievable to me. Um, well, you know, again, I gotta, I gotta watch my language here. This is not unbelievable, right? This is, this is their standard practice. This is what we should expect from them, Right. Um, but nonetheless, I guess what's unbelievable is that, you know, as 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 a grim of perspective I have on the uh, on the state of our world. Right. And have throughout my life. Um, um, always, by the way, I should always say that, you know, grim perspective, but not say all is hopeless. But the only reason I have that is because you can see the kind of inequalities, the exploitations, the abuses right in front of us so we can change it. Right. So that's the idea. I mean, I, I've never been a, a kind of like cynical, grim you know, or cynical dark cloud, if you will. Like I'm a dark cloud that believes that we need the sun. You know? It's like that's the whole idea is that I just can't help myself but from seeing this stuff. But even I don't think I ever imagined a time right consciously, at least where we would be we would be seeing the overturning of Roe v. Wade and then seeing the state-by-state state kind of like, you know, uh, absolutely brutal abortion restrictions and abortion bans like we're just seeing there in Florida, right? And and here's, th this is one of the things that I, I want to read. This is the first thing from the uh, the AP, right? Um, 
Obviously, the first sentence, a Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, signed into law a bill approved, approved by the Republican-dominated Florida legislature to ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, right? But just, just, just listen to this for a second. So the gov- this is the second paragraph. The governor's office said in a statement late Thursday that he had signed the legislation. The ban gives DeSantis a key political victory among Republican primary voters that as he prepares to launch an expected presidential candidacy built on his national brand as a conservative standard bearer. Okay, now I, I don't have an issue with like the factual statements in that paragraph, right? But for the emphasis of this piece from the AP, for the second paragraph to be about a political tactic and not the assault on women's lives, it just like, I was reading this, I'm like, wait a minute, did I miss a paragraph? We're going to go into horse race politics after a six-week abortion ban? Are you kidding me? I, I mean, I, I, you know, it, I mean, it gets to a little bit of that, <laughs> right? But not really, right? And, you know, again, you know, why does it matter if this is coming from the AP? Well, it matters because a lot of, like, local newspapers, a lot of pay- newspapers, that's how they, t- that's what they take, right? That's what they basically take and reprint, maybe add a couple things to their story, right? That's what they use for their leads. And to not, like constantly be foregrounded the assault on kind of like uh, the assault on women uh, of, of, of people who could be pregnant and, and this kind of like Christian nationalist mentality that is kind of, you know, I mean, that's got to be front and center. I mean, we seriously, that needs to be what we focus on, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I maybe I'm just kind of overdoing this thing, but I was like, holy crap. Right. I mean, and it's a short piece. Right. So this is like really things designed to be like, hey, this just happened. Boom. <coughs> I guess it's, it's not super short, but it's like, this just happened. But to be focusing solely on that just really, really blew my mind. But uh, and then so I, I, I mean, you know, this is what we've been we've been promised. Right. The Republicans have been telling everybody for a long time that they want to ban abortion. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've had abortion rights advocates for years have been telling Democrats, you're not paying enough attention to this issue. You're kind of taking the issue of abortion for granted. You're t- I mean, all this kind of stuff is that there is an assault on this stuff. And for a long time, Democratic Party leadership was kind of like, oh, no, we're going to we are all pro-choice. Right. But, you know, and they said, we will not allow this. This will always be the law of the land. But when it, you know, when it came right down to it, it it's like, okay, but we got to be acting like it, right? We got to see these like little assaults that were coming before the Roe v. Wade. There had to be a fight. And it was lukewarm at best, right? I mean, I, I, you know, (laughs) Rebecca, Rebecca Trainer, I think her name, um, Traster, I'm sorry. I I, I love her writing. and, And I remember her talking about this, like, you know, over the years before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, while talking about how the abortion issue has been taken granted from by the Democratic Party, right? And to the point where, you know, uh, you know, starting in the Clinton administration, because they, you know, did that triangulization and moved more to the, you know, move more to this to the quote unquote center or maybe become more conservative. They started not talking about abortion per se, but started talking about women's health, 
right? Or women's reproductive rights, right? I mean, when you start, get, when you get used to that kind of language because you're trying to avoid talking about abortion, right? You make the ability, you make the attacks against abortion like easier, right? So basically, when it came became clear, you know, remember when that when the the uh, that uh, the um um we had Scalia's uh, draft opinion that was leaked. And then suddenly you had kind of Democrat Democratic Party, like national leadership starts to freak out, like, oh, my God, they're really they're, what, they're really going to do it. And even some of them start to go, ah, you know, that's just a draft that they're just putting out there. And they were questioning all this stuff, but they were unprepared. They were caught flat footed with a, uh, a response. And I think it's because of these decades of like not talking about some of the issues that they supposedly champion. Right. This is what I'm, you know, I, I have to say, this is what I was really excited about that what, what Shapiro did, um, Shapiro was, did, you know, Shapiro was clear about his defense of, of uh, abortion protections and abortion rights um, in his campaign, which is good. But I would say Ashley Ahas, right, who just announced that she is running, right, um, in the Pennsylvania first against Brian Fitzpatrick again, right, she has been like unmovable and incredibly clear on her support for abortion rights, right? I remember when she came and spoke in Percocy, right? I mean, you probably saw some of the images that I put up online about this and stuff too as well. And she spoke there, big t-shirt, 1973, right? Roe v. Wade, protection of abortion rights. Right? I mean, geez, you know, and I, this is going to continue to be an issue and I, we're going to need fighters on this because uh, what starts in Florida like leaks to the less to the rest of this country. Florida is on the cutting edge of conservative politics, right? Um, just as Texas, Texas has been for the longest time. But that's just crazy. So you got that, you got, you know, the, the Florida ban going on, and then you've got these kind of like case after case being put up now to try to kind of further, um, you know, take away abortion rights. And one of the kind of latest cases was going uh, with these uh, court cases that were attempting to basically say that uh, mifepristone, right, the abortion pill, um, um, was not approved in the appropriate way, that the FDA did not follow appropriate procedures or they, they overstepped their bounds and being able to do this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so they're trying to get basically this approval um, reversed, right? So that basically would make it all of a sudden illegal. Now, the federal appeals court that was hearing one of these cases, right, that basically said, well, no, we can't do that. We're, you know, we're not going to, uh, we're going to refuse to suspend the FDA approval, right? However, there was a second part, and I can't remember if this part of the same case or if this, this was the second case, but the other one had to do with, the other issue, main issue was before the court had to do with um, patients being able to receive uh, mifepristone through the mail, right? And you remember, we started hearing a lot about this and, and justifiably so, right? I mean, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, we started hearing that, okay, yes, well, some people were trying to be reassuring to say, well, women are still going to get access to mifepristone. They're still going to be able to kind of get that. They can get it through the mail. And there were, you know, organizations that were basically setting up kind of pathways to make sure that um, that women knew how to get access to those drugs and through mail order and so on. And it's been true of other drugs, right? I mean, as we know that we have this increase of kind of mail order prescriptions, right? So 
Um, I have what a, a pres- prescription I take. I get kind of through the mail. And so they're saying, look, yep, you, you cannot interfere with the U.S. Postal Service on this, right? Um, because this is a, you know, it's a federal agency and this goes, they go across state lines. And yes, if, even if you have a ban in your state um, against abortion, um, these women can still get these things from out of state. So there was some sense of like, well, it's going to be okay. Well, now that's where they're going after, right? I mean, these people will not stop. I mean, they, you're, you're talking about religious zealots who are, are looking to just ban abortion, reassert uh, kind, of, kind of white supremacist patriarchy, right? Reassert the kind of father's domination of the family, right? To put women back in their place before God, right? I mean, all this kind of nonsense, that's their goal. Right, and that doesn't mean that like every Republican that you talk to is gonna you is gonna believe those things like in their core and say those things to you, but that's where the power is right now, and where the agenda is right now, and where all the money is right now is behind these Christian nationalist policies. And you have people like here, Brian Fitzpatrick, right here in in Bucks County, right who will say, well, no, I'm not a Christian nationalist, but will nonetheless vote right along with this kind of nonsense. Right? I mean, that's the bigger, the bigger problem, right? The bigger problem is getting, is, is kind, of, kind of shifting our political cultures in such a way that we, we get away from the personality politi- politics and kind of get towards how do we actually kind of like set an agenda as a people, as a community, and pressure our legislators to actually do what we want, right? And to, and to cut through the nonsense of the PR nonsense that, you know, people just, they, they swallow hook, line, and sinker half the time. But it's crazy. And, of course, big story this week was all on the kind of the leaked documents um, that we saw some, a whole bunch of classified documents related to the war in Ukraine were leaked um, to a Discord server. And, you know, like I said before, um, the, you know, there's, there's, there was like this little server of, there was a kind of group of about 20 to 30 people, right? They, you know, exchange racist memes and all the kinds of stuff, uh, love video games, right? Exchange racist memes. And this guy was the Air National Guard who had, in their intelligence unit, had access to um, classified documents. And he took them and he circulated them in Discord and he told them like, Hey, you need to know what's going on. And hey, just, you know, don't post these anywhere. Yeah, right. I mean, once you've, once you've already basically stolen the documents and released them, you think they're going to stay anywhere, whatever. Um, but he goes ahead and he kind of uh, releases that stuff that dominated a bunch of, like, the news this week. Um, you know, a bunch of the news, you know, as it turns out, um, at least what we're being told in the media is that those documents, um, they were not like detrimental they weren't the kind of documents that were sharing say battle plans or kind of behind the scenes plans or things that say russia didn't already know about um but nonetheless it gave a picture of what the u.s knows what it doesn't know a little bit about uh ukraine's spring offensive um that there was some kind of u.s special forces that were in ukraine you know, so there were some things that were damaging, you know, that the U.S. was basically monitoring and kind of surveilling kind of some of its, you know, quote unquote friends. And, you know, it's the same, the same old, same old kind of stuff. It's like basically a window into the national security state. Um, and, you know, and it also kind of exposed that, you know, despite having this enormous, one of the largest kind of secret service or, you know, covert action operations in the world, that um, that it's far from leak proof. <laughs> Right. 
So that took a lot of, you know, a lot of air out of the thing to, you know, justifiably so I understand what's going on, but he was just arrested in Massachusetts. Um, and we'll find out more about what was going on there. Um, it looks like this is a different kind of motivation than what we saw with, um, with other, you know, kind of, uh, major leaks where we saw people purposely, um, uh, releasing documents to expose, um, kind of wrongdoing or people, you know, like the classic spy situation where, you know, somebody gets leaked documents in order to give them to another government. Um, you know, but they nonetheless became, became deeply problematic, especially when, you know, Russia got their hands on it pretty quickly and actually altered some of the documents to make it seem something different, right? To sow discontent and sow division, you know, as you would expect. Um, and speaking of sowing discontent and division, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, stepped up to defend the guy, right? Jake, what was it? Jake uh, Tahira, Tahira, um, and basically said, look, he's, he's white and he's Christian, and he's anti-war, so he's against the war, against us helping Ukraine. He's, he's, he's behind Russia, so he could have done anything wrong. It's Biden who's wrong because he went out against the Biden regime. So all she could do is like, like when your worldview is simply like own the libs or anything that they do must be wrong and everything that we do must be righteous or when they do something, they must be wrong, so I must do the opposite. Right. It's like a freaking Seinfeld episode with this woman, except she's far more dangerous. Right. I mean, Seinfeld episode, you know, that where George Costanza basically, I know I'm dating myself here a little bit. George Costanza and uh, Seinfeld basically decides that, you know, his life is going in the, the wrong direction so that he needs to everything that he does goes bad or is the wrong thing. So he decides to do the opposite of everything he would normally do. Right. That's like Marjorie Taylor Greene's thing. It's like, oh, Joe Biden said this. Therefore, I must do the opposite. And, and then and be firm in my convictions and make it sound like it's a political stance when it's just like freaking third grade, you know, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. So there you have it. Um, this is going to be one to watch, right? Um, Matthias uh, Dupfner, he's the CEO of Germany's uh, largest media company. That company is called Axel Al, uh, Axel Springer. Um, they own, if you ever kind of seen, say, German publications and stuff, there's this um, tabloid called The Build, right? Which is, you know, it's kind of, you know, National Enquirer-esque. It does have some, you know, writing in it, but it's, you know, celebrity and like, you know, alarmist stories and that kind of stuff. Um, well, <clears throat> here's an article from the, uh, just so you get a sense, right, from, uh, from The Guardian, um, on this, it says the G German CEO of Europe's largest, uh, oh, it's Europe's, I thought it was just Germany's, no, Europe's, Europe's largest media publisher tried to use his flagship tabloid build to influence the outcome of Germany's last election and fed the newspaper his personal views attacking climate change activism, COVID measures, and former Chancellor Angela Merkel, and leaked messages suggest. And internal chats, emails, and text messages published by the German weekly did cite on Wednesday, a clash with the public presentation of Axel Springer's SE chief's executive, Matthias Dorpfer, who recently said he wanted to bring nonpartisan journalism to a two-polarized U.S. media landscape through his acquisition of the English-language title Politico, <coughs> right? In one message quoted verbatim in Die Zeit from 2017, Dupfner says, 
Quote, I am all for climate change, unquote, seemingly arguing that human civilization in periods of warm climate was always more successful than periods than during periods of cold periods. And he said, quote, we shouldn't fight climate change, but adjust to it. Right. And then it goes on, you know, th this whole thing it exposes, you know, the very same thing we're seeing with right wing media here. Right. Especially when you got these billionaires right, who are kind of out there and they utilize their kind of unprecedented acquisitions of wealth in order to drive their agendas into the mainstream, right? I mean, it's the same thing. You know, this is where, you know, when Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders has been on that, you know, on his book tour and things like this, and, and he always gets, like, asked this question and challenged on it, whatever, like this, and he said, look, billionaires shouldn't exist, right? And people say, oh, you mean, you're trying to say, you said billionaires don't exist. Like, they think it's a gotcha moment, right? You know, every time I see him interviewed, like I'm sitting on TV, they always think like, he's a billionaire. So do you really think billionaires should exist? And he's like, yeah, I think they should exist. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like so funny. It's like, you know, they're so used to, they're so used to kind of like, like, like center to the left, like of people getting all squirmy about, you know, about, you know, calling out class and inequality, you know, cause you know, that's all happened, you know, to the official, like, you know, left of, you know, whether you're talking about the Labor Party in England, or you're talking about the Democrats here is like, <clears throat> when you start talking about kind of holding the billionaires accountable, right, I talk about all kind of inequality, and you're saying that, you know, rich people should basically, yeah, be taxed at a 90% level or something like this, right? When you're saying things like this, they say, Oh, it's class warfare, you're sowing seeds of division. And then they all back, Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? No, Bernie Sanders is just like, yep, billionaires shouldn't exist. This is why. Right. It's the same. This is why it's the same thing. When we talk about the AI stuff a little bit later, it's the same principle. These people have accumulated so much wealth to themselves, which by the way, they have taken from our productivity. They didn't do this stuff, right? They have basically bought and sold politicians and policy such that the wealth that is created by any given society from which they're a part, or they have their jaws into or claws into, that they could extract more of what is created from that society, right? You know, you've probably seen this. Well, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this, you know, famous chart, right? Shows that right up until, you know, shortly after, about 19, 1960s or so, right? a little bit later, but right up until then is that as you saw rise in kind of like say GDP or let's say, or um, the rise in productivity, for example, of, you know, of, you know, kind of an aggregate of a nation, right? Once you saw that kind of, you saw that rise in productivity, right? And rise in productivity, and then you compared it with the um, compensation of what the, say, corporate owners extract or the corporations extract, the profit that they get, right? And versus the share of that wealth that was created that goes to the actual workers, Right. It, it was, you know, again, there was always a gap. Let's be clear. It wasn't like everybody's getting the same. There's always a, a big gap. But if you look at the rate. Right. So in other words, the, the amount like the percentage of kind of increase in pay. Right. The percentage of increase in productivity as productivity gains went up. Right. So did pay for workers up until like late 50s and 60s. And then finally, when you get to the 80s, it goes off a cliff. Right. Then it starts to separate. Right. That's the period when we saw like increasingly kind of like, you know, um, offshoring of jobs. We saw the kind of like moving of things overseas when we hit the 90s, of course, and then NAFTA's passed. That goes that goes crazy. 
Um, the dec- at, with the decline of union jobs, we also see this kind of gap there because there's n- less of kind of workers' force, organized workforce, organized labor to be able to kind of push back against the accumulation of profit from the people who own things, right? Well, and then that keeps on going up, right? And then you see this just kind of go, you know, and you see like another huge thing after the financial crisis crisis in 2008, boom, it goes up even further, right? That's that kind of wealth gap. And once you have that kind of wealth gap and, when you, and, and you have that kind of wealth concentrated in so few people, they get to basically do whatever the hell they want to do, right? They take the vision that's in their head, right? And they force it on the rest of us, right? And we've been acculturated to worshiping these people, right? That's been part of the culture of neoliberalism, right? Is basically equating wealth with like upstandardness and kind of rightness and expertise and knowledge and knowing better than us, you know, all that kind of stuff. We put these people up on a pedestal, we call them geniuses, and then we look to them, right, for their wisdom. And then when they say, we must do this, you're like, oh, well, they're a billionaire. They must be able, you know, they must be right. Bill Gates, he's a smart guy, right? He was, you know, whatever. Bill Gates is the perf- the classic example. We've talked about this on the show. Like Rick Smith always talks about this too as well. We, we hear this all the time, right? Is like the, the Gates Foundation had billions of dollars. And they basically said, we want to change education. And so we're going to do all this high stakes testing. We're going to do all this kind of quantitative stuff. We're going to do all this, you know, um, standardized curriculums and all this other kinds of stuff. We're going to do all this measurement and data of all this stuff. And then it's going to make everything better, right? And so they basically went to, quote unquote, failing schools, schools that just basically didn't have enough funding, right? Because the, the effed up way that we fund schools in this country. And they said, listen, we'll give you whatever, a million dollars, right, to uh, give you kind of state-of-the-art equipment here and all this stuff, but you have to implement this kind of, these these changes, right? It's like the IMF, right, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They used to do these things all the time, structural adjustment programs. That's basically what Bill Gates was doing for schools, right? Say, oh, yeah, we're this nonprofit, and we're just trying to help out, and we've got all this money. we got really good ideas. We've got really super smart people, so we're going to show you how to do this. And they said, okay, but you, you accept the money, you're going to do this. They said, okay, we're going to do this because they need the money. Right. And then slowly that has an influence because now these other schools want the money. Right. And then all the public officials are like, oh, yeah, why don't you go with this? And then it starts to influence the entire educational system disproportionately to the point where even the public schools that get no money from the Bill Gates Foundation are now kind of like in this world of high stakes testing, standardized curriculum, and kind of like, like metrics at the expense of real education. You know what they found? They found that, again, this is a, a report that was commissioned by the, the, the Gates Foundation from the Rand Corporation, which is kind of a libertarian leaning think tank, right? So no friend to organized labor or no friend to kind of like public education per se. And they basically said, yeah, look, all that money that was spent over the years eh, is basically a wash. If you look at schools that kind of didn't follow the Gates path and you look at the ones that did all these kind of like jump through all the hoops of the Gates Foundation, yeah, turns out the schools, standardized, the standard public schools, the ones that have always been there, we have teachers controlling curriculum, not these kind of corporate forces, but when they're doing it, they're actually do the same, if not better, in most cases, in many cases, better than the folks that, that went the Gates route. And so then Gates Foundation gets, oh, well, I guess we fucked up, <laughs> right? Oh, well. Meanwhile, it turned the entire education system on its head because... Like 
this dude wanted to impose his vision on the world. And of course, it's all done with the kind of like, oh, we just care. We're just trying to help. It's done with that stuff. Same with the COVID vaccines. He did the same freaking thing again with the COVID vaccines. Right? There was pushes, right? And even, I, you know, there was even pushes that basically within the FDA, and we need to basically, if we are going to basically subsidize the production, the development of production of these vaccines, right? Which is what happened, right? Well, the Trump administration, that was that whole, I'm forgetting the name of it now, right now. But it was like, we're going to do this super fast, right? So they flooded the, these corporations with all this stuff. And there were the put, there was pushes basically, okay, in exchange for that, right? That we're giving you all this money. And yes, you're going to be able to develop this. You're going to be able to patent and stuff like that. But in exchange for that, you have to release this to the world, right? Because it's a global pandemic and people are going to die. Right. And that was probably the most efficient way of making sure that everybody, see, you, you basically have the formula, you kind of like remove or you may remove the patent. You're guaranteed this kind of, you know, these kind of uh, whatever profits in short term, but you remove the patent. You're basically going to make it available for everybody so that they can develop it locally. And of course, Bill Gates go, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Intellectual property issues. No, no, no. Wait, not do this. And they lobbied and lobbied, put a ton of money behind lobbying to not do that. And instead, force all of those agreements to go through a private intermediary. I forget what it was called. It was called like, um, uh, it's like, like Vaxet or something like that. I can't remember. Covax, Covax, right? Had to go through. Had to go through that Covax thing, and then and all that, and then but basically, corporations exerted a disproportionate influence on those those kind of agreements, and so the people who were poor. Nations who were poor, right, had to wait longer to get access to those vaccines. Same principle. This is what we saw, this is what we're seeing right now in the kind of complete destruction of Twitter through, um, by, you know, Elon Musk, right? I mean, it's time after time after time. I mean, I very much look at this as like, this is kind of what this, we are starting to, this is not, we've been doing this for a while, but we are basically living at a moment where we're watching the rise of kings, Right? where yes, we still have a democracy and a federal government and all this other kinds of stuff, but increasingly we're, we're worshiping at the altar of kings as our democracy is being taken apart. And I don't know why anybody wants to go back to a time when we have kings. When we basically say we plead our case and kind of hope for grace from the king and hope they're going to do the right thing. You know, it used to be they're descended from God, right? You know, they're endowed by God, and that's why they're king. Now it's because they've got so much freaking money that they effectively took from us. And now we worship at their altar, you know? I mean, that's what they want, of course. But anyways, so there's that. And I already mentioned the stuff on Florida. I mean, that, that kind of what we saw in the flooding in Florida was just was, was remarkable. I mean, I can remember when we got 12 inches of rain over 12 hours in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm just, I, I, it was, I do not believe that was um, Sandy. It was, it was another, I was another hurricane. I'm just, I'm, I want to say Ian, but I don't know if that's right. Um, but it, there were parts of Pennsylvania that got 12 inches of rain in 12 hours. And that was just like unheard of. And I remember we went up to, uh, kind of up by the Ricketts Glen area, right? Um, Wilkes-Barre, Ricketts Glen, um, um, 
Bloomsburg, that, you know, that kind of area. We were up in the mountains kind of not long after that. And I, I was astounded. I mean, it was literally there were bridges that were ripped, uh, like, off their, I mean, like, talking concrete bridges were just kind of ripped and torn, girders, you know, bent, roads completely gone. And the flooding was just, like, insane. And this, what Florida just got, was double that. <laughs> Right in an area that's already you know already low lying, already already uh, swampy, all that kind of stuff. So the flooding was extensive, and actually, you know, the mayor of um, I think it was mayor of Fort Lauderdale was saying they got lucky, quote unquote, is that the worst of the storm came in during low tide, and if it had been high tide, then there would have been the devastation would have been more, like even more insane. What's amazing to me, like I said, there was uh, very little reporting initially <laughs> about, you know, the fact that this is this is our climate present, right? I mean, the climate change, this is what it's going to be causing. You know, and I just, I, I think about this, right? I mean, you know, they say that, we, you know, with climate change, you know, scientists are, you know, say, obviously, the, the earth warms, it gets more um, moisture into the atmosphere, which basically supercharges storms, and it's going to give us more precipitation. So that's, we get here with the rain, you know, what happened, you know, and then I'm just imagining, okay, so then you add, say, you know, just one significant, um, um, you know, ice shelf collapses in Antarctica, right? And, you know, you're talking about even it's like a three, four inch uh, rise in sea levels, right? And then you put a storm like this on top of that. I don't know if there's recovery from You know, you're already talking like, you know, like 10, hundreds, I'm sure, hundreds of millions of dollars this is going to cost there. A state of emergency is declared and so on. Um, it's pretty devastating. Anyways, uh, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Chris Ullery and Bethany Rogers' piece in the Bucks County um, Career Times and uh, a little bit more. I want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Um, you, can help, you can help us by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, if you're watching us right now on YouTube or if you're listening to this podcast, make sure you kind of like the stream. Make sure you kind of subscribe to the, uh, subscribe to the show. Um, give us that five-star review and let other people know, like, you know, why you do what you do. Anyways, we're going to talk to, uh, we'll be right back here. We actually got a, a comment from Chuck that we'll lead to when we come back right after this break. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1930. That was the day that 114 agricultural laborers in California's Imperial Valley paid a harsh price for joining together to try and improve their working conditions. The Great Depression was worsening the already difficult conditions faced by California farm laborers. The workers had gathered at a hall in El Centro, a city in the valley. The meeting was called together by the cannery and agricultural workers industrial union. The union often faced great opposition because some of its leaders had communist ties. 
The meeting in Imperial Valley included many Filipino and Mexican workers, along with white and black laborers. One by one, the workers stood up and told their stories of harsh labor performed under the unforgiving California sun. Suddenly, the door of the hall burst open. In poured armed sheriff's deputies and gun-toting thugs hired by the growers. At their head was Sheriff Gillette. Every single worker at the meeting was arrested. They were chained together, loaded into the back of trucks, and transported to the county jail. There, they were charged with violating the Criminal Syndicalism Act. During the first Red Scare of the 20th century, California was one of 20 states to enact laws criminalizing syndicalism. Nine stood trial in front of Superior Court Judge Von Thompson. Three Mexican workers were ordered deported. The remaining six were convicted and sentenced to between two and 42 years in prison. They were ordered to serve hard time either at Folsom State Prison or San Quentin. Judge Thompson declared that, for communists, anything less than a life sentence was lenient. In 1933, the final two prisoners were released from prison. Organizing California farm workers was a long and difficult campaign that faced great opposition. Right here, right here with me now. Here we go. Welcome, all my people. <laughs> That's why you know it's funny. I had I had uh, I remember a while ago I had when I first you know switched to this song. Um, there were uh, you know I, I got a I wasn't gonna say hate mail. It's not hate mail. It wasn't hate mail. It's, I don't know why I was even thinking that. But a lot of people were saying oh, I'm not sure what I think about this song. What I don't think about the song. And I said it's so depressing and everything like that. And it's like you know it's funny. Um, I totally get where that, you know, why you think it's, you know, why somebody would think it's kind of depressing, you know, like, you know, there are no people in the future. Where'd all my people go? But I, I, what I always loved about that song, right, is that he's got a people call, right? Where'd all my people go? Let me try my people call. Where are all my people? And the idea, right, is like, here we are, right? It's the gathering, right? It's not that there's no people in the future, right? It just feels like that's the where things are going. But wait a minute, we just need to find each other, right? So that, I don't know. So maybe it's a, maybe just a different way of thinking about it. But I was, I just loved it. When I first heard that song, I was like, man, it's such a cool juxtaposition of kind of something that seems kind of like dystopian, but then it's got this, such this, this hopeful like sound and music too. So anyways, I don't know why I went off on that. So whatever. Um, so Chuck basically uh, said, say, uh, Steve Santasiero um, is doing a meet and greet on Monday along with PA conservation voters about what environmental issues to prioritize. There's a bit of a hall when I'm going. Um, Chuck, you got any, if you got any details about that, uh, if you do, um, can you just shove them in chat and I'll, I'll kind of put it out. I'd love to, I'd love to know about that. Um, and especially if it's the kind of thing where more people could show up, be great to have folks um, who are concerned about climate issues um, to be there. Um, and basically say, this is why this needs to be prioritized. Um, so yeah, it's great. Um, so yeah, a couple things. So one, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go and kind of spoil our whole discussion on Monday. Um, but like I said, on Monday, uh, I'll be welcoming Chris Ullery to the show. Um, we're looking initially, it looks like it was Chris and Bethany. We're going to see if we can get both on, but Bethany wasn't able to kind of make it. Um, so it's just, it'll just be Chris. Um, but so Bethany Rogers, I mean, just your Bethany Rogers is, um, 
she's part of the same kind of network, right? So uh, she is um, the USA Today Network, um, Pennsylvania Capitol Bureau investigative journalist. Um, you may have seen some of her other stuff um, that she has been uh, publishing on. She had an article recently. It's called Pennsylvania Republicans Blasted Ballot Harvesting. Now they want to use it. Um, she has uh, been doing kind of great reporting there, too, as well. And if anybody who's, you know, in our Bucks County listening area or beyond uh, certainly knows Chris Ullery's work, um, he's, you know, from my perspective, Chris Ullery has been, you know, the one that's been, uh, I, I don't want to say just Chris because it's not just Chris, um, but he has been doing just bang up work, um, his investigative work um, on what's been happening in the school boards, a range of other issues too as well. He's a phenomenal reporter. And this story, right, um, that they just published, right, it's called... Um, Sorry, libraries to locker rooms, how a religious law firm is changing PA school policies is absolutely phenomenal and devastating, right? So let me just read you, read you kind of the opening for this. And I want to encourage you, the, the link for this will be in the show notes. Um, uh, you know, I should, I should also say this too as well. Sometimes that, you know, when I have the time, I, I put the live links also in our YouTube thing. Uh, what I'm saying, show notes, I'm still, I think it's, it's a carryover from our podcast. All those links are live in our, um, all those links are live in, um, uh, on our podcast. But I should make sure this is in there because I want people to read this article. Um, but anyways, so this is, this is how it begins. As culture wars rage in schools across Pennsylvania, a conservative faith-based law firm has been quietly crafting policies to advance gender essentialism, limit LGBTQ expression, and restrict library books. And some districts are listening to these attorneys over their own solicitors. The USA Today Network has documented through a series of public records requests. The Independence Law Center and its parent organization, the PA Family Institute, are both tied to anti-LGBTQ hate groups and have gained a foothold in school districts by volunteering free advice and legal services, often in places facing intense um, community conflict. Emails obtained through right-to-know law requests show the tactic has been successful in multiple Pennsylvania school districts, at times even allowing groups to mold education policies without the public knowledge, right? And, you know, as you would expect, um, this was kind of reported on um, kind of earlier um, that, um, that Chris Ullery had a piece that was published back in January um, called Conservative Groups Involved in Central Bucks Library Regulations, Some Fear as a De Facto Book Ban. Um, that was kind of when that's, that's when it was first uncovering that this um, organization, um, the Independence uh, Law Center, uh, was involved in this PA Family Institute, which is their parent company or organization. That they were involved with this too as well. But now they've also found uh, found this like all over the place. Um, so Eastern Lancaster County School District, um, the Penridge School District, of course, Beaver County Southside School Board. Uh, Crawford County's Pencrest School District, um, Central Bucks, as I've said, um, and the level of their involvement and the degree to which people like in the Penridge School District, Joan Cullen, actively basically went to them and say, here's the policies that are going to be coming up for a vote we're considering. Let me just send these you these policies and we need you to help us kind of, kind of, you know, effectively write them, right? Or how, give us advice on how to pitch it. Um, to keep it within this kind of like Christian fundamentalist, Christian nationalist uh, framework. So it, it's pretty, it's it's a remarkable piece of reporting. Uh, I'm so glad that it's here. And I'm really excited that Chris is going to be on the show on Monday um, to talk about this. Um, I think that 
what's what this reporting also is really good about doing i think for for all of us right, who like you have to you know live in this world um is to give us an idea about the the, the kinds of questions that we should be asking with the board the kind of records requests that we should be putting forward um and what we need to know about how our money is being is being spent right and how and what these people who supposedly kind of uh, represent us the agendas that they're pushing um because it does feel like you know we're it's being things are being slowly changed and not so slowly changed um right underneath us right um i don't know what else to say um <clears throat> there's this other thing there's this there's this um I don't fully understand it. And, I, you know, at some point I'm going to have to see additional reporting on this. There was, um, there was this uh, Central Bucks was doing this demographic study, and they're doing it with this kind of urgency. And I saw reporting on it. Reporting was perfectly fine about what happened at the school board and stuff. But I think that's got to be something to watch because something's going on with that. Something's going on with this kind of urgent demographic data. And they're saying they're doing it to better serve the schools and to serve the students and whatever. I don't know if this, they're using this as a, a second bite at the apple to try to draw, to redistrict their school board. I don't know if that's what it is or if they're basically going to try to utilize this demographic data to accomplish something else. Because one of the things that happened is they're, 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 they're closing one of the elementary schools. Right. There was a couple things in this, and this is just this is because I spent too much time reading about this stuff and talking about this stuff. But when they're referring to, I wish I had this tagged in front of me. But in the article, when they're talking about the sale of the school, they're saying, "Well, okay, we have these two elementaries that you know, you know, were kind of understaffed or whatever, or there weren't sufficient students to justify keeping them opening." I can't remember exactly how they put it. Um, which I question, right? Because there are parents that came out were kind of demanding to keep them open. Um, but then they say, okay, we kept the one open that was in a little bit better shape, but the value of the real estate for this other school is still remarkable. So we should be able to sell it for a good profit. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking a couple of things, right? This is the kind of move that you see, because look, it's a school, right? And I can't help but thinking, like, here's what I'm putting together, okay? And I could be totally off base, but I just thought I'd put this out there just maybe to get a reality check from folks or to basically let's see if there's any truth to this. So one of the things that happens with, like, increasing of charter schools, right, um, particularly, particularly from the right, Right. Part of the, one of the goals that you have from the right is to bring challenges to a public school system, right? And bring challenges by means of financial means, right? As a way of kind of breaking the public school system. Now, Central Bucks, up until you know all these recent controversies, has been an incredibly um, like well known and had a great reputation, um, had an excellent school system. Um, you know, third largest in the state. And that makes it really difficult for charter school advocates to get an inroad, right? 
because like in places like Philadelphia, where we have historically underfunded the schools, right? It's a little bit easier to get for the charter folks to get a foothold there because they can say, look, our schools are failing our kids and shouldn't everybody have a choice for which school to go to, right? And so what they do, right, is they kind of, maybe there's other schools, they shut schools down because they fail according to those metrics that I was talking about before, the no child left behind metrics, the standardized testing metrics, and they'll close the school down and then they'll sell it off, right? And very, and, and not every time, but many times, um, those schools get bought up by charters, right? Nonprofit companies, right? And the charters are, they're much interested in the real estate, right? Because they're looking for turning a profit. And they do these weird things. I wish I, I wish I could had the time to really take, take us all through all this. Maybe I'll put this on the agenda for the future about real estate and charter schools. Um, but then once you have that foothold, right? Once you have that charter school established, right? You can then start kind of pulling students from the public schools, right? And starting that slowly kind of starts to kind of suck out the funding from the public schools, right? And it's like a, it's secondary kind of a secondary measure of austerity, right? So it's basically taking public funds and diverting them to these private schools uh, or the quote unquote publicly funded private schools, right? And you also have these other, these pushes for charters to be able to, and public funds to be able to go to um, religiously based schools. There was just a recent case that was, um, that got shut down. There was a Catholic church. I'm not, I want to say Indiana, but I don't think I'm right about that. But what was going to be one of the first one of the first test cases of, of in recent years um, to try to have public funds being able to fully fund a, a private religious school. And that's been like Betsy DeVos's uh, agenda has been like that for for decades. So so here we have, so I, you know, I'm just I'm just thinking I'm going to keep an eye on what happens with the school because that could be one of these potential inroads, right, especially with people like Paul Martino's involvement. Because remember Paul Martino at some uh, Central Park school board meetings last, last year was basically starting to target teachers and teachers unions, right? That's the other thing about charters, right? Um, they're very often vehemently anti-union. So again, these are just noticing things happening at the same time and enough where it's saying to me, I just want to pay attention here. Like, hopefully this just comes to nothing. Hopefully this is just kind of, you know, just a little blip that they're just going through doing this actual evaluation that they're saying what they mean. However, the school board in Central Bucks has not said what they've mean, meant for quite some time, right? Um, and they've had these secondary agendas. So I can't, I just keep on coming. There's a nagging feeling that there's something bad in that demographic, um, that demographic study that they're trying to do that we're not seeing yet. So we shall see. We shall see. Um, what else we got? What else we got? Oh yeah. So, uh, this is kind of a thing to watch. Like you had kind of, uh, uh, reproductive health advocates. Uh, so you had Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania advocates. That's the political wing of Planned Parenthood. Um, and you had kind of some other folks who were out there in the Capitol this week, uh, and they were urging governor Shapiro to stop allocating public money to this organization called real alternatives. Uh, Real Alternatives uh, claims to be a crisis crisis pregnancy place. You see them all over the place. I remember when I first saw them, I'm like, oh, look, it's actually, you know, a kind of abortion help and like this here. But they're they're not like they're set up to be kind of like, you know, uh, crisis pregnancy um, centers where you can go to get help. Right. um, If you have an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, But it turns out what they're religiously, religiously based anti-abortion organizations. 
Many of them do not pr provide any health care whatsoever, right? Even while they claim to be kind of like you're there to provide, you know, for women's full health, really their only agenda is to basically um, divert people away from getting an abortion. And they've used a bunch of deceptive practices too as well. So that, you know, they've been found to, um, uh, well, here I'll read. This is uh, uh, Sidney Espinosa, um, Planned Parenthood, um, uh, the Planned Parenthood Pennsylvania's advocates, uh, which is the executive director, is what she said. Their deceptive practices practices often delay patients to the point where abortion becomes inaccessible in Pennsylvania. They provide no pre prenatal care, and they offer and they often force a religious agenda on the people who walk through their doors. These centers should not receive state invest uh, should receive a state investigation, not six million dollar handout. Right, one hundred percent. Right. To add insult to injury, right, and this is from um, kind of the article in the Pennsylvania Capital Star by uh, Marley Parrish and Cassie Miller, um, said Shapiro's proposed budget um, spending plan, his budget, unveiled in March, includes roughly $6 million for the centers, including $1 million allotment from the Temporary uh, Assistance for Needy Families, the TAMP funds, which are food stamps, right, um, which aims to support low-income households. Right. Pennsylvania is one of only nine states that allocates federal funding earmarked for families in extreme poverty, mostly women and children, people of color, to these so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Right. So they're basically taking money away from a program designed to help folks who um, who are struggling, support low-income households. They're taking that, they're sending it to these religious, $1 million to religiously affiliated um, anti-abortion deceivers. Right in these clinics, why it is that we're funding these things? You got to you got to tell me. So um, <clears throat> there you have it. I mean, you have these folks. I mean, doing the kind of yeoman's work out there once again, making sure that um, kind of pushing state legislators and the governor to cut off the funding to religious oriented organizations like this, especially when they're lying about what they do. Right? You have this nonprofit organization that says like you know, like. Don't choose yourself, choose God, right? If they, if their material said, we are here to ensure that like no baby is ever aborted or like no woman chooses abortion and we want to teach the word of God so that they don't have an abortion. Well, then that's at least truth in advertising. What they're doing is an unethical, I'm surprised, not illegal. And for the last thing in the world that we should be doing is spending $6 million of uh, Pennsylvania's budget um, to fund these people. Yeah. But Shapiro, despite his strong kind of like, you know, abortion rights defense, his budget includes this, uh, you know, this request here. Why? Got me. Um, so that was that happened this week. And then Will Bunch this week made uh, an awesome um, case to make, uh, as he, I love, you know, again, this is why I love Will Bunch. Uh, his, uh, the title of his, his most recent piece just got published, uh, yesterday. Um, says to make temple great again, Pennsylvania should take it over. Right. Um, and he makes this great case. He's like, look, you've had Pennsylvania. Um, I, I mean, sorry, not Pennsylvania and temple university has gone through, has been blowing through presidents, Right. This latest guy, uh, Jason Jason Wingard, only lasted less than two years, right? Um, and then he makes a case, look, this is a crisis, yes, but it's also uh, kind of an opportunity, right? Um, and let me just give you his sense. He says, what if the real problem is with the folks? Is it not just we need a new president? What if the real problem with folks is who've been picking, um, who've been picking that 13th permanent president since the 19th century preacher? Blah, 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 blah. 
What if the issue was basically the board of trustees, the ones who thought Wingard's corporate doublespeak about skillification that one critic rebranded as Griftopia was a, was a good idea? Why should we trust that? Why should we trust that board who appointed this kind of stuff and wanted to bring these people in instead? And he makes the allegation to what happens in Major League Baseball, right? So, you know, at some point you can you can you can brain you can basically say, oh, the manager's the problem. You fire the manager of the team, but really, maybe it's the owners that the problem, right? Maybe it's the people at the top, right? Maybe we should um, um, we should not be doing that. And then he highlights um, uh, something that um, Malcolm Kenyatta, right, representative, representative Malcolm Kenyatta, um, he's an alum of Temple and. Um, He's got a bill that would basically add three more public members to the board of Temple, where the current ratio is 24 private um, elected trustees and only 12 appointed by state um, by state leaders. Why would you want to have more public officials? The more public officials that you have as part of the board, the more oversight that you have, right? And that's kind of the idea. But you know, Will Bunch is basically saying, "Hey, look, why don't we go? A, why don't we go a step further? Like, why is it that we have to do this?" He says, "Look." Look, Temple's trustees look a lot like other university boards in the 21st century. They're chock full of major donors who work as venture capitalists, corporate lawyers, and developers, and light on um, and light on folks in uh, in touch with the actual college mission, such as professional educators or current or recent students. A corporate heavy heavy board is going to be private is going to bring a privatized worldview to the academy. It's going to see adjuncts or teaching grad students as human capital who can't be allowed to unionize or focus more on a college's workforce development mission, not the arts and humanities. We're seeing this everywhere. This is certainly true at Kutztown University, right? And then he says, this week, the influential Chronicle of Higher Education published a scathing takedown of Wingard's philosophy. This is the you know, former temp Temple president. And what its headline calls uh, Higher Ed's Grim, Solus Ed Techified Future by, by John Hopkins historian uh, Francois Furstenberg, which I'll remind you will be on this show, will be on Out the Coop Live on April uh, April 24th. Um, for, yeah, he's coming on too. I was so psyched to see Will Bunch give him a shout out, right? Because I, uh, I contacted this guy right after I read his piece in the Chronicle, but. Anyways, Furstenberg wrote that this warp vision, quote, teams with business-minded academic reforms, outsourced course content, and the substitution of high-cost human teaching with cheaper technological alternatives. Unless broader coalition mobilized to stop them, they will continue marching across the landscape of higher education like zombies, transforming the content and purpose of curriculum and the image of our post-industrial financialized moment, right? And then Will Bunch makes the move that you need to make. The best way to restore Temple as a public good, once again, serving Philadelphia and the surrounding communities is an affordable and accessible way up the ladder. Would be to make it, and arguably the three other state-supported schools, that's Penn State, that's Pitt, and that's Lincoln, right, into fully public university. Doing it right would mean returning tax, uh, taxpayer funding to that nearly two-thirds of the budget level that just a dozen years ago. Lowering tuition, replacing the current board with all public trustees. Right, people that are there to do the mission, not the ones that are there interested in making money. Right, um, so it's great. So now I don't want to go into uh, too much of it. I want you to read Will Bunch's piece. Uh, please do check it out. It was just published yesterday in the Inquirer. Um, it's his piece to make Temple great again. Uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania should take it over. Um, and also, I'm really looking forward to talking to um, Francois Furstenberg uh, about his piece in the Chronicle that uh, Will Bunch cites there. Um, called, you know, <clears throat> you know, looking at higher ed's horrific technological future, <laughs> right? So um, do check that out. But, you know, again, this is the kind of conversation we should be having, right? I'm so glad to see Will Bunch put them out. I'll put this stuff out there. So good on you, Will. Um, 
Okay, so just a couple of fun things to click out. I don't know if people saw this. Amazon, uh, you know, there's been AI has been all over the all over the news um, with all these new kind of AI chatbots and so on. Um, I don't know if anybody has really played with them. They're they're absolutely fascinating and horrifying all at the same time. Um, they're uh, you know everything about my you know science fiction brain about you know the uh, the the possibilities of uh, kind of like positive uses of technology and the kind of like dystopian view of what happens with technology are all active at the same time in my brain as I'm looking at this stuff. Um, I started looking at it, you know, initially because, you know, everyone, not everyone, but lots of folks in higher ed were freaking out because, or in education in general, because, you know, you had some students were using these you know, chat GPT and some other AI bots to basically write um, assignments. Um, and I, I have one faculty member who, who comes to my office kind of, on a relative regular basis that, yep, got four more of them. Yep. Got a couple more of them. Yep. But we start, we start talking about some of the moves that gets made in those things, whatever. But so, but thus far it had been first chat GPT and then Microsoft bought it um, or kind of contracted with them to write it into Bing, into its um, search, uh, search platform, whatever. Um, and then Google freaked out, right. Hired a bunch of more AI people to kind of um, continue and, and put out um, its version, which they call Bard. Uh, which I haven't used quite as much as ChatGPT, but I'm just kind of, you know, I'm curious about um, what comes out. So there's that. Now, Amazon, right, Amazon does what Amazon does, right? So remember, Jeff Bezos never really did anything, right? All Jeff Bezos did is he had brought in a lot of money and a concept, and he basically started buying up different services and putting it under one banner, right? Remember, Amazon used to be a place we went to buy books, right? It was a way, especially when you had like lo lots and lots of local bookstores um, were kind of closing down. Um, there were only two places you could get books. Uh, well, arguably three. There were Borders, there was uh, Barnes and Noble, and then there was I for even forgetting the other name of the other one, like B Dalton or something like this. It was this tiny one, and the selection sucked, right? And the only people who had access to a much wider kind of uh, variety of books were, you know people who lived in big cities or by in a university towns or things like this. And that wasn't good. So Amazon, when it first started was, you know, people were like, wow, I get access to all these books, right? I mean, check this out. This is awesome. Then slowly they began building out and what Jeff Bezos did. Right. And I remember reading an interview with him when he, when Amazon first really kind of started to become this monster, as he said, look, I didn't know anything. I basically, I just kind of thought about how putting things together and how to kind of like how all this stuff functions together. I don't know anything about, you know, the business and all this stuff. So all he did was kind of see, saw an opportunity, right. To basically break industries and take them over. Right. And, and extract a profit for, for, uh, for Amazon and for himself. Right. That's basically what Amazon does. And even to the point where they, when they develop um, kind of, you know, different products or content, they, they steal from other people. Um, or they basically create a platform that basically becomes so dominant that other people have to play on their field, right? This happens a lot of kind of like small sellers who feel like they have to go and have their products on Amazon if they want to be able to sell their stuff, right? So they're doing a similar model now with AI. So instead of basically Amazon creating its own AI, it doesn't really create its own stuff, but instead of it just trying to come up with its own AI, what it's done, it's contracted with these three um, private companies, right, that work in AI and is opening up a platform, you know, like they did with self-publishing, for example, opening up a platform that will allow like individual creators, quote unquote, right, to develop AI apps using those, um, the engines from those three, um, those three companies that they contracted with. 
right? And so basically you have two layers of outsourcing going on um, with the development of this AI. And that's also three layers um, away from our ability to have any kind of public scrutiny over what the hell is happening there, right? So even if, say, for example, we get an expose of what Amazon is doing, we don't necessarily have the information about what's happening here or those independent um, AI bots. So it's, you know, you're basically Amazon, I, we'll see. This, this platform they're calling Bedrock, um, which is it's like a Minecraft thing, right? So I don't even want to go down that road. Um, but there, it has the potential. This is where my dystopian like like alarms are going off, right? Because it allows individual people, right, or small companies or bad players, bad actors, right, um, to develop and use AI machine learning apps in ways that have not been tested, that we haven't looked at the impact and so on. At the very least, we can, I mean, again, there's all sorts of reasons why we should be really, really skeptical about what's happening with ChatGPT, the OpenAI, and on Google's Bard. Um, but, right, you can see at least there, there's been kind of significant amounts of, or they're, they're saying at least, there's been a, a significant amount of um, testing and people being able to kind of um, see what's happening there so they can make adjustments to it. Still think it's a little much, but whatever. At least we can make out of here. This is kind of like, feels like the Wild West. So, strap in. Um, so, I got to see uh, Dungeon Dragons, Honors Among Thieves. Um, um, not last week, week before, right after when it came out. Um, I saw it that weekend. It had been, I just realized, you know, it had been forever since, of course, because of COVID, right? That I actually been to a movie theater, right? And we went, we went to a matinee and we actually got to sit in like, you know, they have these like AMC, we went to one up in Saucon Valley, right? AMC's got like recliners that you can sit into. Like I'm like just like ordering tickets, right? Because I was worried they're going to sell out. So I was ordering tickets. So, oh, look, here's this option. They cost the basically the same. There's like these three different theaters. Didn't want to go to the IMAX and okay, what's this, recliners? I just thought it meant the seat went, you know, rocked back a little bit. I didn't expect to be going, <laughs> like, you put your feet up. It was, it was nuts, right? It was nuts. But it was awesome to watch the, watch the movie in. Um, and so it went with my whole family. And so, like, my kids, my wife, uh, my brother and sister-in-law, my, uh, my niece. Um, and what was awesome, right, this, is, this for me is, like, the biggest thing. First of all, it was like, you know, first at Dungeon Dragons, I was thinking, like, okay, either I'm going to go to this by myself or it's just going to be me and my kids. I didn't think anybody else would want to go. Um, I was wrong. And so uh, thank you, um, uh, Reggae, um, the star of Bridgerton, um, for making his uh, beautiful self-appearance in the show. I think that was a motivating factor for some members of our group um, to go see him. But anyways, so we kind of all went because they're, you know, my my brother-in-law, my niece will play D&D uh, with me. But, you know, <clears throat> I'm I'm the freak when it comes to it. Um, but, you know, my wife and my my sister-in-law, you know, whatever, just don't really want anything to do with that. So we all went and I was like, that's awesome that we're all going to go. That made me even more excited. Right. But everybody loved it. Thought it was great. Right. I mean, and the people and people who are most skeptical. Right. Um thought it was awesome, right? Um, and that made my day. So I'm not gonna give you any spoilers um, because I, I, I just, I, I think it was it was such a fun movie and that's the, what I liked about it. It's like, there's so many layers within this, within this film um, that, um, yeah, there's there's so many layers within the film. Like, so one, it just, just as kind of, you know, 
a group of friends going on an adventure kind of thing is like, you know, there's that kind of thing, but it's not like really super heavy. Um, um, it was funny, right? Um, it had a little bit of kind of hokiness to it, right? So it felt very accessible and alive. And then at the same time, um, as someone who like has played Dungeons and Dragons, right? And knows a little bit about kind of like, you know, how the mechanics work and then different, you know, rules of the game and all that stuff. There were all these little things that were going on um, in there that were about the characters. Here's, a, I'll give you, well, no, I don't want to give any spoilers. I, I will say this, right? So I was, I was, there was one character um, who, um, there was one character that um, was like one of the main characters uh, in, like in the movie, right? Um, who pays like this particular role, right? And if, uh, whereas you have like, I'm not spoiling anything here, but so, you know, some of the characters, one character is a druid, right? She's like, you know, <clears throat> she's got these kind of like horns and she's got, you know, um, kind of like uh, kind of woodsy kind of like stuff going on. And she can, she in there kind of transforms into like uh, like a creature, like the, on the show or on the uh, the preview of the trailer, they show transfer into this thing called an owl bear or something like this, right? So that's something. And so for the rules of the game, if you're actually playing like on the tabletop version, right? So a druid has this like shapeshifter ability, right? So, you know, that's an ability that is specific to the druid that they can do once they get to a certain level and so on, right? And then you have like this, uh, this other guy who's a sorcerer, right? And you know that there's these particular spells and he's casting spells, you know, kind of what they do from the mechanics of the way that the game works, right? Um, where there's the one character, um, I don't think this is a spoiler. So I don't think this is a spoiler, but I'll just, I'll say this. So the lead character, right? Um, um, uh, Christopher Pine, right? Um, he plays like a bard, right? He's got a, uh, a lute and he's got an instrument and all this other kinds of stuff. And you don't really see a lot of stuff, right? That, that screams out like, oh, this is magic or this is this, or this is kind of the special skill and all that stuff. He seems like a very kind of like, you know, everyday kind of character, right? Within this, within the story. But when you think about the mechanics, right, of it, a lot of the things that bards do are things that are not like the flashy things, are not the kind of like big, big old, you know, powerful magic things like this. And I thought like so much of what his character was doing was consistent with that, but some people were really poo-pooing initially. And then there's this there's this uh, streamer her name's uh, Ginny D who does lots of kind of um, uh, D and D um, discussion and kind of like you know how do you do this and how to help your your role playing game and. Uh, you know, just lots of those things and commentary about stuff. So she just recently did a review of the movie and she said the same thing. I was like, yes, okay. I'm not so far off base. Right. Um, so I'm so glad it was like, it was like kind of affirmed that uh, I had the, you know, on the read cause she's obviously she's so much more kind of involved with the D D community than I am. Um, although I wish I could be as that involved, but I'm not. Um, anyway, so great movie. Um, real fun. Um, there's something, literally, I hate to say it, Lord says, there's something for everyone. Literally, there is. I mean, if you have, like, the people that I went with, and we go there, and we all walked out and had a good experience and had fun with it, uh, it's totally worth it. So I was very excited about that. Um, and the last thing, so I just thought I'd be, you know, kind of bring back some of the kind of, I, we used to do this last call thing right on this show uh, where we did kind of, like, beer and culture stuff, and now it's the not doing the beer stuff anymore. And so I'm just, you know, I'll bring some of that back. So. I was thinking, just thinking about some of the things that I'm reading. So um, I've been wanting to do this for a while, right? So Rick Perlstein, uh, Perlstein actually has uh, a series of books. He's a historian, a series of books um, tracking the rise of uh, uh, um, 
the, the right in this country, right? The conservative right-wing extremism in this country, right? And he's got these series of books um, that, um, that track it by period, right? So the first one is called Before the Storm, um, Barry Goldwater and the Un- Unmaking of American Consensus. Um, and this, it's, it's great. Um, I, I felt there's a couple things that I, why I would recommend um, checking out his stuff. I, I'll warn you ahead of time, like it's, it, they're long books, right? This book is uh, 704 pages. Um, that's the print length. And I will, uh, and I am listening to it on an audio book, right? Because I'm listening to it on my drive back and forth, uh, back and forth to work. Um, just cause I want to be able to, I want to be able to kind of engage it. And I don't, I don't know if I have the time, you know, I get that free space where I can sit down and read something um, like of that length here because, because I want to read all of them. So anyways, so he's got like, um, before the storm, Barry Goldwater on making American consensus. There's another one next book is called Nixon land, the rise of the president, the fracturing of America. And then there's the invisible bridge, the fall of Nixon and the rise of Reagan. Right. So you kind of see this tracking of that kind of history. And one of the things that I was really fascinated about, and it's something that I've, you know, you know, I've read a bit about and, but I just couldn't, wrap my head around how this happened, right? Because right now we tend to associate, right, the Republicans and Democrats, are, uh, we think some of them as parties that are kind of organized around particular kind of ideological commitments. And we can all, you know, talk about the strength of those commitments another time. But before, like in the 1950s, or even before then, right, um, that's not the way the parties were organized, right? So each party had this kind of, like, conservative and liberal components of it, right? I mean, like the Democrats, famously, the Democrats were the ones like who were supporting slavery in the South, right? So you had the Southern Democrats, right? You had the Northern Democrats and Northern Democrats were kind of, you know, more associated with business and, um, and kind of like, like press and liberties and media and things like this. So you had this, you know, these different kind of divisions and they, they became more exacerbated over time. Same was true with Republicans, right? You know, you had, you know, Republicans, remember Republicans, they were the party of Lincoln, right? They were the party of abolition, right? Um, and, but then they had this other strain in them, which more this, were this kind of libertarian corporate one, anti-union part, which kind of had its roots in the West, right? And what's really cool about this book is that you start to see these parties, what happens to these parties and how we get the alignment that we have now, right? It's also, I think it's a useful reminder, right? Um, You know, one one of the things that I always say, like, you know, I'm not, I don't like playing the kind of red team, blue team politics. Um, Like, I don't like that idea. Like, you know, my team's good, your team's bad. Because it, it, first of all, it's just so incredibly unproductive and, um, or it's not unproductive, counterproductive, right? For actually, doing what people need, right? Um, to flat to, you know, say, I'm going to put on just, I'm going to take the identity of a party and I'm going to advocate for them regardless of what. No, I mean, the only reason that kind of, you know, we're going to advocate on this program, we're going to advocate that you get, you know, these Democrats elected is because what's happened, that those Democrats are more likely to be able to be pushed in a direction that's going to do more for the people, like protect the women's right to like for to an abortion, right? To ensure there's public funding for, you know, um, uh, Medicare, right? Ensure that we get all eventually, like, you know, universal health care or free public college, all that kind of stuff, right? Does that mean everyone in the Democratic Party is? No. But it's also a reminder to me about, you know, that the ideological alignment of the parties is relatively new, right? 
And the kind of thing that a lot of people kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, polar pearls at, oh, my, we, can, we can't fight as Democrats. They're like, oh, you can't criticize them. That was pretty, you know, a standard procedure um, for quite some time in American party politics. So that's really interesting to see that trajectory and that development and the, the, the threads of the discourse, right, about how, the, say, the Democrats eventually come around. And, and it gave me a whole really, a much more concrete understanding, too, about why the New Deal really was this kind of turning point, right? Um, and why that the origins of people like the Koch brothers, right, and these kind of ultra-right-wing libertarian stuff were formed at that moment of the uh, the New Deal. So anyways, that's what I'm reading. Uh, Rick Perlstein's uh, book, great book, uh, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking American Census, quite good. Great writer, too, as well. So it's not like, you know, stuff that's like, just here's a bunch of facts. It's a really great storyteller. Um, the other book I'm reading on the fiction side of things is a book called The Bone Shard Emperor by Andrea Stewart. Um, it's her second book um, in the, the Drowning Empire trilogy. And what I love about this, and I mentioned this when I when I read the first book, um, The Bone Shard Daughter, um, it's drawing much more from kind of Asian traditions, right? Um, and if you think about, you think about like Japan and the South Pacific, just as kind of being much of island nations, um, that's kind of like the world in which this takes place is these kind of island nation or island kingdoms, right? Um, and histories within that. Um, and Stuart kind of brings this kind of imperial, I'm very, I'm very much reminded of when we kind of talk about um, kind of historical, say the Chinese like emperor system or even in Japanese imperial system, I'm um, kind of before, you know, World War II, like more ancient ones. There's that kind of mode going on there in terms of how things are kind of organized. But what's fat, it's just a fascinating world building because it's, you know, there's this magic that takes place using these kind of bone shards, right? And the bone shards having to kind of actually, you know, you know how like, you know, in any kind of like, you know, king or empire system that's like basically you have people who basically tithe to the king, right? I mean, they take a percentage of your grain or take a of your gold, whatever it might be. Here, one of those things is kind of you have to tie the bone. Right, um, this kind of particular bone that then gets used in this magic to do these kind of um, build these constructs. But it's just a, it's a really cool world building, and one of the what it hit me right. You know, I mean, anybody who reads this stuff will see it here. What's really cool about these books is that how would I put this? It it starts from a different premise around gender and sexuality. Right. And what I mean by that is this, is that it is um, it, like, say, same sex relations, right? Things like that is completely normalized, right? Nobody even like comments on it, right? The only reason you know, like the, the gender of somebody's partner is because, you know, say a pronoun will come up or something like this. So you realize, oh, this person, is, you know, this person is married to, you know, this woman is married to a woman or this man is married to me, that, that kind of stuff. But it's completely like unremarkable, <laughs> Right. And it was just, and just as a starting point where it just takes that off the shelf, right? And so then instead, you, you're, as storytelling, right, there's not those gendered crutches that you see in a lot of other fantasy and stuff like that. But instead, you have character is really at the, uh, at the forefront of how things are built, character and culture, 
right? Class, right? Because even though, you know, gender is not kind of like a, a, a divisive, like cultural argument, um, but class is certainly kind of embedded. Um, lots of stuff around class within here. And it's just, uh, it's just a really cool worldview. So anyways, highly recommended the Bone Shard Emperor, and it's the uh, part of the Drowning Empire trilogy. Um, they're also long books too as well, but they're pretty readable. They're pretty short tra- chapters and stuff. Really interesting. I will say this. Um, give, if you if you pick it up, you're going to read it. Give yourself just a little time just to kind of get into it um, because it is asking you to kind of learn this new world, right? It's not the kind of book like if you've ever read Frank Herbert's Dune uh, where you have to learn all these different kind of languages and terminologies and this really tech, it's not like that. It's not like Lord of the Rings, which is kind of like really deep with the kind of backstory and history. You have to kind of understand the relationship with all these families and all this stuff. It's not like that either. It's like, but I mean, it's asking you to kind of imagine yourself in a different kind of place, right? You're getting immersed in um, a world where social relations don't automatically correspond to our own, right? In a really, in my view, that's some of the best work that can happen in this kind of fiction. So um, highly recommend it. Anyways, uh, that's all I got for uh, this week, everybody. Uh, I appreciate you taking time with us today. Uh, appreciate you, uh, you know, um, staying cool and uh, maybe listening in a little bit. Um, this is a second by 80s, six 87 degree plus days uh, that we're having in a row here. So it's gonna be another hot one. Hope you stay cool. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, looking forward to some, uh, I don't know, some good stuff ahead. Don't forget that we've got Chris O'Leary coming on um, this Monday at 7 p.m. on Out to Coop Live. We're gonna be talking about um, that new article um, focusing in on the, um, the role of the Independence Law Center. It's this kind of, uh, you know, religiously funded law firm that has been working with school districts to uh, write LGBTQ and book banning policies and things like this. Um, do check out the article. The article is called Libraries to Locker Rooms, How a Religious Law, for- law Firm is Ch- um, Changing PA School Policies. Um, that's Chris Ullery and Bethany Rogers. Um, but we'll have Chris on the show this Monday at 7 p.m. and out to Coop Live. And then on Monday, April 24th, I'm welcoming Francois, Francois Furstenberg to the show and talk about his piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education called Ed, uh, Higher Ed's Grim Solus Ed Techified Future. Um, but for now, I'm going to wish you a wonderful weekend. Happy Friday. Um, hope everything's going well for everybody. I want to thank you for your support. Thank you for the time that you take on uh, both supporting the show, tweeting out the stuff, uh, sharing it with your friends, joining in the conversation, um, and supporting kind of what we do. Um, I can't tell you uh, what it means to me. It's absolutely fantastic. So thank you. You can help support this show by heading it over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can have a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, for now, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Wishing you well. See ya! I guess I'll fly away now